Let's pray together before we study the Word of God. Our God, we bow before you this morning with grateful hearts for your Word, for its instruction, for the way it reveals who you are and what you do, for the way it guides our lives, showing us your will, teaching us how to live, giving us the content of the things we believe. We're so grateful to you, and we're grateful always for the salvation that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on Calvary, a work that we cannot add anything to. We are saved by grace through faith. That, that of ourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. We come to you, Father, just simply putting our trust in your Son. Not ourselves, not religion, not religious ritual, but in Jesus alone. There's even one with us in our midst this morning who has not made that decision. I pray that they would this day, the most important one of their lives. Father, guide us as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The main idea of Acts chapter 15, and the one that I hope that you will remember, is this, doctrine is worth defending. Doctrine is worth defending. Unfortunately, we live in an age when many believers don't even believe that. Many who name the name of Christ do not believe doctrine is worth defending. But if Acts chapter 15 teaches us anything, it teaches us that doctrine is worth defending. The context for this in Acts chapter 15 is that there was the growing presence of primarily Gentile churches. There was the growing presence of primarily Gentile churches. Paul and Barnabas are just coming back in Acts 15 from the first missionary journey. And on that first missionary journey, they made a transition to reaching out to Gentiles and establishing Gentile Christian churches. And so that brought up the question, what should be the relationship of a Gentile who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, what should their relationship be to the law, and specifically, what should their relationship be to circumcision? And it causes a disturbance in the church. And secondarily, as we study Acts chapter 15, and we won't really get to this till next week, we'll see the process by which the church was able to come to a decision about that. Or another way to say that is how to have a good church fight, if there is such a thing. How to have a good church fight. So there's the growing presence of primarily Gentile churches that ignites this question in Acts chapter 15. In the commentary, God's word for the biblically inept, I love that. I love that title. God's word for the biblically inept. 
the writer lays out the issues of Acts 15 in this way. To some early Christians, it seemed the gospel had leaped out of its corral and was galloping across the world, the world landscape like a herd of mustangs beyond control, free and wild. Wonderful things were happening among non-Jewish people. Whoa, Nellie! The writer said that. I did not. I want that known. <laughs> Whoa, Nellie. Who says that anymore? At any rate, strict Jews who believed in Jesus were happy when the first Gentiles found the Lord. But then they watched as changes took place that made them extremely uncomfortable. From childhood, it had been drilled into them that circumcision was the symbol separating God's people from pagans. Naturally, they expected believing Gentiles to start acting like Jews. This set up a showdown that led to another important turning point in early Christianity. That's the importance of Acts 15. That's the importance of Acts 15. The writer goes on to set the stage by saying this, Gentiles would soon outnumber Jews in the church. Paul and Barnabas' two-year mission brought a quadrillion more non-Jews into the church. I believe that's hyperbole. Brought a quadrillion more non-Jews into the church <clears throat> without telling them that they had to obey Jewish rules. To some Hebrew Christians, this was unacceptable. Two questions bugged them. Number one, how can non-Jews be saved and considered the people of God if they don't observe the law of Moses? And the second question, how can Christians who keep the traditions of Judaism break bread with ceremonially unclean Gentiles who ignore Moses' rules about the right food and the right way to prepare it and who don't get circumcised? So that's what's happening more and more Gentiles are coming into the church, and more and more they are establishing Gentile churches. So what must the relationship be, or what should the relationship be of Gentile believers to the law, and specifically to circumcision? And that sets up Acts chapter 15, and what we call the, the uh, Jerusalem Council, in which we... The, uh, the terms of salvation are established, not just for Jew, but for Gentile as well. Well, to summarize Acts 15, before we get into it, this is what we're going to say, and then we'll say it. Number one, some legalistic believers were teaching that to be saved, a Gentile must, in addition to faith in Christ, be circumcised and keep the law. That's what was being taught by some Judaistic believers, legalistic believers. Well, this was a time of transition in the church. At risk was the direct mission to the Gentiles and the doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ alone. The question that the church must resolve is this. Must one make a commitment to Judaism in order to be saved? Acts chapter 15, referred to as the Jerusalem Council, debated and resolved that issue. Now, by the way, the issue is still with us. Not necessarily the issue of circumcision, not necessarily 
the issue of being under law, although I think as Christians you and I encounter many more people who try to challenge us that as believers, if we really want to please God, we got to put ourselves under the Old Testament law, and of course they're usually pretty selective about what part of the Old Testament law. So I think that you and I encounter legalists, you and I encounter Judaizers more often who want to bring us under law to please God. The law was not meant to save. The law was meant to condemn. The law was meant to show us how far short we fall of God's standard and to lead us to Christ. We're not saved by following the law and we're not sanctified. That is drawing near to God. We're not, we don't draw near to God by following the law. By that I mean the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. But, so I see more often, not to digress too far, I see more often that you and I as believers are approached by legalists trying to bring us under their legalism. But there are still additions to faith. There are still teachers who are teaching additions to faith for justification, that is for coming to faith in Christ. For instance... Uh, there is repent of your sins and believe. Have, how many times have we heard that? If we're going to be saved, we've got to repent of our sins and believe. Well, that's a wrong understanding of the word repent. It's a wrong understanding of the word repent. Repent in the Scripture does not mean feel sorry for my sin. Repent in the Scripture means to change my mind about something. What do I change my mind about? In salvation, I change my mind about who Christ is. He's not just a human teacher. He's not just somebody that God exalted. He is God incarnate. What I repent of is seeing Him as just a human. Not seeing His deity. Not understanding that He is God in the flesh who went to Calvary's cross to die in my place. That's a contemporary addition to salvation. If by that a person means feel sorry for my sin, I have to feel sorry for my sin and believe to be saved. That's not true. Another contemporary addition is I have to be baptized. I have to believe and be baptized. Scripture is very clear that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, plus nothing. Not plus my good works, not plus baptism, plus nothing. In Philippians 16.31, you're familiar with the passage, the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas after a night of being beaten and singing. That's what Paul and Silas did. The Philippian jailer says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course we know that Paul and Silas said, well, you've got to repent of your sins and believe. No. Didn't say that. You've got to 
Believe and be baptized. No, he didn't say that. You've got to believe and accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Didn't say that. Now, by the way, Jesus should be the Lord of our lives, but that's something that happens after we become Christians, not to become a Christian. They didn't say you've got to believe and surrender your life to Christ. They didn't say you've got to believe and publicly confess Christ. What did they say? When he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not believe plus repent of your sins. Not believe plus be baptized. Not believe plus surrender your life. Not believe plus anything Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Oh, by the way, before I forget, there is somebody in Scripture told to repent of their sins. Do you know who that is? Believers. We're being told in Scripture, not unbelievers. Unbelievers are never told to repent of their sins. They must repent about who Jesus is. They must change their minds about that, but it is you and I as believers in Jesus Christ who are told to repent of our sins, meaning that you and I are to change our mind about sin. We are to change our mind about sin and no longer live for sin, no longer live for self, but live for God. Turn away from sin. So even today, there are some contemporary additions to faith that some like to add today. Well, before we get into all of the details of Acts chapter 15, uh, I want to summarize the, where we were two weeks ago in the book of Acts. Last week, as you remember, we got a missionary report from Tom Lunsford, uh, which was exciting if you weren't here. Uh, it was very exciting. I believe it's up on our website. It's not on our website, okay. Well, I gave you a little bit of a recap in, in your uh, bullet in your uh, sermon uh, note sheet today. So, sorry, that's all you get. You missed it. You missed a good one. They can order a CD. Oh, you can order a CD. Okay. So, if you want to hear the presentation, the report of, of Tom, just order the CD. Put it on your that little flap on the bulletin. Um, before, I just want to kind of go back and, and summarize and recap what uh, we learned a couple of weeks ago as uh, Scott taught us from Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. Uh, we read there that they preached the good news, that's Paul and Barnabas, they preached the good news in that city, which is the city of Derby. I'm reading verse 21 of chapter 14. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch as all of the cities that they had gone to, all of the cities that they had uh, reached on the first missionary journey, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now, I like to think of that as Paul and Barnabas' farewell tour. You know, we have a lot of artists today, a lot of singers, a lot of musical groups, and they always have these farewell tours. We're breaking up the band. 
and uh, they have these farewell tours. I was reading the other day, uh, I, I found this very interesting. In 1992, Ozzy Osbourne hit the road for his farewell, no more tours run. 1992. In 2019, he had no more tours too. <laughs> I found out, it's interesting, that a lot of these, these older bands, uh, as, the, as the members of the bands are getting older, they find out that if they go on a no more tour, or they go on a farewell tour, they'll rake in millions of dollars. And then in about five or ten years, they can do it again. Amen. Well, this is, to me, Paul and Barnabas's farewell tour. Uh, they didn't know if they'd see these, these churches again or visit them, but they come back through these churches that they had visited before. I, I like what Dr. Gray said. Is it not amazing that Paul and Barnabas should have returned through the cities in which they had so recently suffered persecution. Remember, in Antioch, the Pisidian Antioch, they were uh, uh, treated abusively and they were expelled from the city in Iconium. There was a plot to mistreat and stone them. In Lystra, Paul literally was stoned and left for dead. Some believe he actually did die and was resurrected. And yet, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They go back through the same cities. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty amazing. I, I'm not sure I'd have done that. Say, you, you know what? There are other routes back. Let's Google it and see what we can find out for another route back. But they didn't do that. Why is that? Because they knew the church needed to be taught, strengthened, and encouraged. Especially about the issue of persecution. Because what we read is that they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith how did they encourage them? They told them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. They didn't encourage them by saying, hey, everything's going to be fine. You're going to have an abundant life. Of course you're going to have an abundant life. That's what the Scripture teaches. But the Scripture also teaches that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The scripture teaches in Jesus' words that in this word, world you will have what? Tribulation, but be not afraid. I have overcome the world. How did they strengthen these believers? How did they encourage these believers? They strengthened them, encouraged them by telling them expect, expect persecution, expect difficulty, expect trials in your life. That's how they encouraged them. They prepared them. You see, because difficulties and trials and persecution are, are, are not alien to the Christian life. They are a part of the Christian life. They're not alien to my life. 
They're a part of my life. They're not alien to your life. They're a part of your life. So they strengthen them against an unrealistic view of the Christian life. They strengthen them against unrealistic expectations. They emphasized not what God would do for them, but what they will endure for God. They emphasized not just what God would do for them, but what they would endure for God. So they predict hardships. Interestingly, Eugene Peterson says this, word lists from the Psalms referring to suffering are as extensive as those that express praise. Isn't that interesting? If you look at the words in the Psalms, those that express suffering are as extensive as those who, that, which express praise. That's significant. That's significant. Oswald Chambers, in one of his daily devotionals, says this, When God gets us alone through suffering, heartbreak, temptation, disappointment, sickness, or by thwarted desires, a broken friendship, or a new friendship, when he gets us absolutely alone and we are totally speechless, unable to ask even one question, then he begins to teach us. Did you get that? When you get to the place where you can't even open your mouth, then you're ready to be taught. And I'm ready to be taught. Malcolm Muggeridge, we don't hear from old Malcolm too much these days, but uh, since he's not longer with us, uh, he says this, everything of value I've ever learned in life has been through suffering. Everything of value I've ever learned in life has been through suffering. A.W. Tozer, great commentator on the Christian life, said history reveals that times of suffering for the church have also been times of looking upward. Tribulation has always sobered God's people and encouraged them to look for and yearn after the return of the Lord. Our present proclamation Preoccupation with this world may be a warning of bitter days to come. God will wean us from the earth some way, the easy way if possible, the hard way if necessary. It's up to us. Suffering weans us from this world. Suffering weans us from this world. Well, one last Leroy Imes said this, just because a person is walking by faith and claiming the promises of God doesn't mean his or her life will be easy and free of difficulty, but through it all is the guiding, protecting hand of God, and in it all we can find the unfailing promises of God. How did Paul strengthen them? How did he encourage them? by telling them to expect suffering. Now, why would that be important to these brand new churches? It would be important because they had seen Barnabas and Paul suffering. 
for the sake of the gospel. And they might wonder, what's going on? So Paul and Barnabas prepare them for the suffering that would come. Well, as Warren Wiersbe put it, Paul and Barnabas grounded believers in the Word of God. This is the only source of strength and stability when persecution comes, and it inevitably does come. Paul did not preach a popular success gospel that painted a picture of an easy Christian life. So they encouraged them. The second thing they did... Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The second thing that they did to encourage and strengthen the church churches that they had established on that first missionary journey was to appoint leadership. Uh, good leadership is necessary for the church. And uh, they, I'm sure, instructed them uh, the, about the need of leaders, elders, the need of servant leadership. I'm sure they instructed them in the qualifications of leaders, uh, which Paul later delineated in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. So they encouraged them by teaching them that hard times would come. They encouraged them by giving them leadership. And then finally, Verse 26 in our recap of two weeks ago. From Italia, they settled, sailed back to Antioch, that is Antioch in Syria, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. When they went back, they gave a report to let the church know. That there was a couple things in that. Number one, they were showing their accountability to the church. They were showing their accountability to the church by laying out what had been done. But also, they were encouraging the church to see that God is active and at work in the world. And that's behind the reason we try here as much as possible at DRBC to have missionaries uh, the ones that we support, the ones in whose lives we've been involved uh, and integral for many, many years, to have them come back and tell us what is going on in the world. In Tom's case, what is going on in Africa? What about the discipleship ministry that he and others began and has taken the continent of Africa beginning in Ethiopia? That's to be an encouragement. It's not just to tell us, well, I'm not just sitting around, I'm working. It's to be an encouragement to us. It's to be encouragement to us on several levels. Number one, to see what God is doing in the world. To see beyond Del Rio, Texas. Is God doing something in Del Rio, Texas? Sure He is. Of course he is. But the world is big. And when we have missionary speakers, whether they be Tom or any one of our other myriad ministries, 
missionaries, all of which we have some kind of a personal tie to, which is so awesome. God's doing great things. And thirdly, there's a third reason that we like to have missionary speakers come because some of you sitting in these chairs will be just like some who sat in these chairs before you and are now on the mission field. These chairs, these same coffee-colored chairs, that's what that color is, by the way. It's cappuccino covers. Of course you'd know here at DRBC we'd get chairs that look like coffee, right? We are committed to coffee. <laughs> Let me rethink that. But at any rate, <laughs> many who sat in these chairs now in mission work who are in ministry, that's exciting. So they, they gave a report to the sending church. Three things they reported. Number one, the gospel had gone to the Gentiles. Number two, that message that they preached was a message of faith, not of works. And number three, God did it. I love the emphasis. We get so far away from that. We talk about what we did. We talk about our plan. We talk about our values. We talk about our purpose statement. What is God the Holy Spirit's purpose statement? They talked about what God had done. When they appointed leadership, they entrusted them to the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing that we can entrust Christians to the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and lead their lives. Isn't that amazing? It is to me. Because we do it so seldom. We do it so seldom. Well, that's the recap. <laughs> Shall we get into chapter 15? I think we shall. Chris is looking at his watch and saying, <laughs> Yes, Chris, I'm being a bad example to you. <laughs> Acts 15. We read in verse 1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is pretty important stuff. You see, Paul and Barnabas had been out and they had been reaching out to the Gentiles with the Gospel. They had been telling them that they could be saved. They could be in a right relationship with God. They could be justified. They could be given the righteousness of Christ by simply doing one thing. What was that one thing? Believing. Believing in Jesus Christ. Putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting Jesus Christ. 
And now all of a sudden, these Judaizers, these legalizers from Jerusalem come down. And the reason it's down, you, you on a map, you'll say, wait a second, Antioch's north of Jerusalem. Uh, it's north, but topographically, it's down because Jerusalem is high. So they went down to Antioch the Judaizers and the legalizers, and they insisted that circumcision was essential for salvation. And they really went for the whole enchilada because they didn't stop there. Verse 5 tells us that then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. See, they didn't just say that Gentiles, in order to be saved, must be circumcised. They said that Gentiles, in order to be saved, must also bring themselves under the law. Some believe that maybe they were prompted by John Mark's report. Do you remember John Mark? He was with the original team when Paul and Barnabas went out and he abandoned them. And some think that the reason he abandoned them is because he didn't like this message that Gentiles could be saved by faith apart from works of the law, apart from circumcision. Some believe that he was tied to that teaching and that when he went back and when he abandoned them, he went back and he gave the report, you won't believe what Paul is teaching. He's teaching that people, Gentiles, can be saved without becoming Jews. That Gentiles can be saved without circumcision. Gentiles can be saved without following the law. Now never mind that they couldn't do it. And so that's, some believe that that prompted them was John Mark's report. What's at stake here? What's at issue here is the direct mission to the Gentiles. The direct mission to the Gentiles. One writer said this, it was difficult for the Orthodox Jews to see that their glorious religious system given by God had been fulfilled in Christ and was now out of date. That is why the book of Hebrews was written. Boy, what a great book. Christ, His priesthood, His sacrifice is better than Moses. And His priesthood and the sacrifice of lambs and goats and other animals. The book of Hebrews is such a tremendous book. There's some things I'd like to say about that, but I'm going to edit myself. It was difficult for the Orthodox Jews to see that their glorious religious system given by God had been fulfilled in Christ and was now out of date. Rather than abandon it, they tried to blend the old religion with the new. Rather than abandon it, they tried to combine the old religion with the new. Never mind that Jesus said 
You don't put new wine into old wineskins. Why is that? The old wineskins are old and brittle, and when you put the new wine and it begins to expand and ferment, what happens to the wineskin? You got wine all over. Never mind that Jesus said you don't patch an old garment with a new unshrunken cloth. Why is that? Because you put that new unshrunken cloth and you patch a, a garment and then you wash it and it shrinks and pulls away and you have a bigger tear than before. But they thought they were smarter than Jesus. Legalists Never mind. <laughs> well, at issue is the direct mission to the Gentiles. At issue, at stake is salvation by faith alone. At issue is, did one have to make a commitment to Judaism to become a believer in Jesus Christ? And as is often the case, with legalists, they were dogmatic about it. Apparently, though, without having any authority at all from the Jerusalem church. Well, verses 3 and 4, church sent them on their way, they had decided that Paul and Barnabas would, were appointed, rather, to go along with some other believers and to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad, except for legalists and pharisaical believers. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. They were joyfully received. They were welcomed. The news of them reaching out to Gentiles in this way and Gentiles coming to faith in Christ made them joy, uh, gave them joy. Well, this is what we call the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. We see the process, and by the way, that's one of the things we're going to try to do next week when we, when we finish chapter 15. Uh, we're going to try to synthesize and put together what were the steps that the church took, the Jerusalem church took, to come to an agreement on this issue? Because the steps that they took to come to agreement on this issue are steps that are still available to churches today to deal with particularly doctrinal issues. By the way, Acts chapter 15 includes a dispute over a doctrinal issue and how the church resolved it. It also concludes in the last four or five verses of chapter 15 a personal dispute that was not resolved. 
at least not immediately. By the way, the churches face two kinds of disputes. They face doctrinal disputes, which is a good thing. Somebody has said uh, a dead church doesn't have that kind of issue. Doctrinal issues are something that will come and need to be dealt with on the pattern of Acts 15. The trouble is most churches are not dealing with doctrinal issues. They're dealing with personal issues. There's nothing that can be done for that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, if you follow the scripture and offer forgiveness and humbly, humbly listen to the other side, it can't always be resolved, but many times it can. The dispute at the end of Acts 15 wasn't resolved for many years. Verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. They were not just promoting circumcision, but they were saying that Gentile believers had to keep the whole law, something they themselves could not, did not do. One thing I hope that you and I are clear on is neither justification, that is being made right with God, being given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, neither justification nor sanctification, which is the process of growing closer to God and away from sin, closer to God and away from self and selfishness. Neither justification nor sanctification can be a combination of law and works. Salvation is by grace through faith, or not of law and works, of law and faith, excuse me, of law and faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. Sanctification is by grace through faith. We're not sanctified by keeping the law. The law is complete. Jesus fulfilled it. Remember he said that? He fulfilled the law. It did its job. God gave the law through Moses to show us, to show humanity, how far short we fall of God's righteousness. It was meant to drive us to God's provision for sin. And that ultimately was sending His Son Jesus to Calvary's cross. So, neither justification nor sanctification can be a combination of law and faith. It's all of faith. And it's all of God. Just a couple verses and we'll finish for today. Paul was many believe writing or had just written the book of Galatians or would be just about to write the book of Galatians, which is the great statement of freedom of the believer. What a great book the book of Galatians is. Paul said in Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, 
who has bewitched you before your very eyes. Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? The answer is clear. They received the Spirit because of believing. In verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, if salvation begins by grace through faith, how foolish it is for you and for me to think that we continue the Christian life by keeping law. And James tells us and Galatians tells us that we can, if we keep the whole law yet fail in one point, we are guilty of what? The entire law. We couldn't keep the law. They couldn't keep the law. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Wow. What a statement. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Well, there's so much more. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 is another passage we could go to many passages to be clear we are saved by grace through faith we are sanctified by grace through faith and what is happening in acts 15 which will continue next week is that there are legalizers pharisaical believers jewish believers who are trying to say that salvation isn't by faith alone but by faith plus circumcision, faith, plus following the law. They were wrong then. They're still wrong today. And doctrine is worth defending. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of this passage. Help us to realize that it is by your grace, through faith, that we are saved and that we grow, grow closer to you and help us to communicate that truth to those around us and not confuse the gospel by adding anything to faith. In Jesus' name.